This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, his office was set up to fail. The Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery tells you why he believes it and what he's done about it. Accelerating Innovation in Science, the leader of the Convergence Accelerator at the National Science Foundation on solving big problems differently. And the number one story of the week, back to the offices coming to the federal government. Two human capital leaders tell you what could possibly go wrong. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Office of Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery, quote, was almost set up to fail, according to the man that runs it. A year into his tenure, though, he says the office is a success. Brian Miller is Special Inspector General for Pandemic Recovery. Brian, welcome back to the program. Thanks for coming on. Why did you tell GovExec this week your office was almost set up to fail, Brian? Francis, first of all, it's great to be with you again. Thank you for inviting me on. Um, I, I mentioned that to government exec because there's just so many forces arrayed against us. It almost seems like it's set up to fail. Everybody wants oversight, but when it comes down to the nitty gritty of actually doing the oversight, um, their support kind of wanes. So, um, you know, in, in, on the one hand, you have a set of uh, senators and congressmen that aren't crazy that uh, President Trump nominated me or anyone to this position. And, and so you have, you know, the support there is, uh, could be stronger and then you have, uh, you know, other senators and congressmen that uh, aren't thrilled about the idea of having the special inspector general in the first place. So that I come into a job that I think is critical because you need to have a special inspector. You need to have an inspector general focused on nothing but CARES Act programs, CARES Act programs administered by the Treasury, Department of Treasury. And I'm not sidetracked by any other obligations or responsibilities the way an agency IG is, uh, um, you know, his, his attention is divided or her attention is divided uh, because they're looking at other aspects of how the agency is performing. I'm looking at nothing but CARES Act programs. And I think that the uh, country at this time needs that sort of focused oversight. And so I was bringing that focused oversight and you know, throughout their, you know, it, the nature of a special IG is that um, they're focused on one thing, but you always have an agency IG. So there's always tensions. I know Neil Borofsky, the special IG for Troubled Asset Relief Program, Sig Tarp, uh, has written about it in, in his book. He faced similar tensions. Uh, almost every special IG faces these sorts of tensions. And so, uh, you know, you come into the agency and you're looking at these programs and, uh, you know, for whatever reasons, people seem to line up against us to make the job difficult. It's, it's almost an impossible job to start with because you're starting a brand new federal office from nothing during a pandemic. So as I said last time, Francis, it's like uh, building the airplane while we're flying it 
but not just while we're flying it, but flying it through the storm. So we have all these uh, pressures and uh, challenges, and then you have, you know, what's happened recently is we've had challenges to our jurisdiction, and so then, um, you know, some offices in the executive branch say that, well, you know, we don't, we really don't want an extra set of eyes overseeing this program. Um, you know, we, we already have an agency IG. Well, that's an argument against every single special I, IG there is. And Brian, in the time that we have left, I apologize for interrupting, but I, I, there's an existential question here that maybe a template should be established because we need special IGs on an ongoing basis so that the next one doesn't have to do what you did. What support yeah. do you need from who right now moving forward to be able to continue the, uh, to execute the responsibilities of your office? Right now, I, I need legislation from Congress to clarify that my jurisdiction covers all the programs, uh, pandemic uh, programs administered by the Department of the Treasury. So specifically the payroll support program, the coronavirus relief program to the states and municipalities. Those are the two big programs. Those are the programs we were conducting investigations and planning to do audits on and talking with DOJ and uh, U.S. attorneys about. And so so legislation clarifying that our jurisdiction covers that is really what we need right now. There are all sorts of lessons learned and other ideas that we have for future legislation for future special inspectors general, but those are the two big things right now. What have you tried to do in the year that you've been in office now to uh, assuage the concerns of people uh, that were skeptical about your nomination? You alluded to the fact that there were folks that were concerned that you were basically a Trump appointee overseeing uh, something that was coming uh, out of the Biden administration. How, how have you tried to act to demonstrate to Congress that you are a fair actor in the position you're in today? Well, well Francis, you've known me from before. Um, I was IG at GSA for about a decade. I have a track record. I'm always uh, nonpartisan, and I try to reach out to all groups. I've tried to meet with all groups and uh, on, on in the Congress and also the um, public interest groups. I've met with them, and I've participated in a listening tour and uh, reached out to other IGs and to um, the. Uh, the Council of IGs on Integrity and Efficiency, and also the uh, Accountability Committee of IGs as well, of which I'm a member. And so I'm trying to work with everybody and anybody who will work with us. My mindset is, uh, from law enforcement, I was a federal prosecutor, is to just make the cases, do the important audits, and work with anybody and everybody who's willing to uh, roll up their sleeves and and uh, make the cases and you know i don't i don't care what office it is if they're helping we we want to have their assistance brian and we, we have about I, i'm sorry we have about 30 seconds left what would you consider a success if we have this conversation a year from now How, what will you uh, what will you consider we've done a great job well i i think uh, if we get our jurisdiction back to do these cases that would be a great success and we're already working on cases that are being considered for prosecution. I think that would be a success. I think doing critical audits, which we've already begun, 
uh, would be a success. We've begun to do uh, audits of the uh, uh, direct loans that the uh, Secretary of the Treasury made, and uh, and I think all of that would be a success. I think it's just a success existing and having the wonderful staff that we have. We have a very experienced prosecutors, very experienced special agents, and very experienced auditors uh, on our staff. And I think it's it's amazing to me when I sit back and, and look at the quality of the staff that we have and the effectiveness that we already are are showing in our office. I think that's already a success. If we do that throughout the year, that will be a huge success. I think we, we are providing the oversight. And again, you know, to, to your earlier question, I'm providing oversight and pushing ahead in providing in doing audits and investigations, even when people didn't really encourage me to do that. Brian Miller, we have to leave it there. Thanks very much. Thank you, Francis. Coming next, accelerating innovation in science straight ahead on Government Matters, finding and funding innovation like no one else in government. We'll be right back. Welcome back. The National Science Foundation's latest funding opportunities will accelerate its climate research efforts. Climate's the latest challenge NSF will take on through its Convergence Accelerator. Doug Maughan is office head for the NSF's Convergence Accelerator. Doug, welcome. It's good to talk to you again. Thanks for coming on the program. How does the accelerator fit into the mission of the National Science Foundation, Doug? Uh, thanks, Francis. It's great to be back again with you. Uh, the Convergence Accelerator fits into the mission of NSF because NSF uh, has a threefold mission to progress the uh, progress science to advance the uh, health and welfare and prosperity of the nation and also to secure the national defense. Even more importantly is the vision that NSF has for enabling uh, science and technology and new concepts. We believe the Convergence Accelerator is one of these new concepts that uh, allows us to uh, be a consumer of the basic research that is funded in other parts of the foundation and even more broadly in the private sector and accelerate those uh, technologies towards commercialization. NSF debuted the Convergence Accelerator in 2019. What's different about it than the other ways that agencies go about trying to interact with the private sector and, and other government agencies to learn what's available to them? Well, I think one of the most important things we do is uh, we've, it's called the Convergence Accelerator because we're really strong in this notion of convergence. Convergence means multiple disciplines, multiple institutions, and multiple types of institutions. So when teams come to the accelerator, it's not just an academic team. They have to include industry or nonprofits or other government agencies. So that's a different model than is typically uh, used at NSF and even in other agencies this requirement of uh, non-academic participation on our teams. What does that result in when you get outcomes, Doug? So we're still new, we're only two years old, so we're, you know, we haven't delivered um, a final product yet, but our belief is that by having the industry uh, team members, it will give us solutions quicker and also give us solutions that are more likely to be used 
um, we talk about use-inspired research, and that's what we're really focused on. The, the difference, it seems to me, potentially outcome-wise, is if you have somebody involved in these teams that actually can speak to the way that something will be made or produced or a service provided, you're going to get a lot more uh, realistic view from the NSF perspective of what it's going to take to actually get something done. Is that a fair read on my part, Doug? That, that's a fair read. And one of the other things that is critical is we require our teams to do customer interviews. So they have to actually go out and talk to potential customers and users. Uh, what we don't want are solutions that just sit on the shelf. We want solutions that uh, real people will use and and uh, they'll they'll go they'll go for some value uh, or product or service and so the the customer engagement is a is kind of a different thing as well for the uh, for the NSF. I mentioned that climate is next up. What? How do you determine which issues you want to take on? I, I read in the, uh, on the website that you're trying to take on issues of societal impact. There's a ton of them. And I wonder how you narrow it down to focus on what you think the next important thing is. Yes, we start with an ideation process where we um, send a request for ideas to the world. And uh, then we evaluate those ideas. Um, those ideas that are selected, then we do uh, a workshop around those ideas to get, a, to, to get a better idea, to get input from the community. And then the results of those workshops become the content for our solicitation. So it's it's not uh, a top-down process, it's a bottoms-up process from the community to get ideas. And, and those ideas can come from anyone, um, industry, academia, even international. We, in, in our last process, we even got ideas from international organizations. So it's it's really a, a community-driven process. I note in an article, a conversation you had with Jason Miller at Federal News Network, um, you said NSF will hold a Convergence Accelerator Expo, a virtual science fair of all of the current tracks and teams, July 28th and 29th. What do you want to take away from that uh, event, Doug? Well, it's a great opportunity for our teams to uh, showcase what they've been working on. What we hope happens is that as people come and attend and they see those uh, topics that are of interest, they'll engage with the teams. Uh, we have a very flexible funding model where the teams can actually bring in more partners um, as, they, as they go along. And so we're hoping that uh, the people that attend the expo um, find some projects that they're really interested in. They'll engage with the teams and uh, they'll work with the teams. They can be a customer, they could be a resource provider um, of data or technologies. So we're really using it as a way to make the community aware of the accelerator because again, we're, we're fairly new and, and people are still learning about us, but more importantly for uh, partners or others to engage with the teams. Doug Maughan of the National Science Foundation, thanks very much for joining me today, I appreciate it. Thanks Francis. You can read more about the Convergence Accelerator at govmatters.tv slash resources. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the number one story of the week, the reopening play across government. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the do's and don'ts to keep your team running on time. You're watching 7 News.
Welcome back. Now the number one story of the week. Some big private sector companies are putting out policies and requirements for bringing employees back to the office. A lot of them are looking at bringing some employees back to the office after Memorial Day and bringing most people back after Labor Day. Ron Sanders is staff director at the Florida Center for Cybersecurity at the University of South Florida, former chief human capital officer at the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. Dan Blair is former deputy director at the Office of Personnel Management. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Does that scenario that the private sector is adopting that I mentioned a moment ago make sense, Ron, for the federal government too? It does make sense, although, frankly, I think it's largely been overtaken by events. I think agencies have been uh, planning for and making these adjustments for several weeks now, if not several months. I think they all knew this was coming. Uh, and I hope we get a chance to talk, Francis, about the inflection point that COVID-19 presented, because I think we're not going back to what we used to call the new normal. We're in a new normal now, and it is all about remote work. I do want to talk about that, Dan. That's actually where I wanted to go next. What does this look like when we get to September, October, November? What does the next normal look like, in your view, given what we've learned over the past 14 months? Well, I think what's paramount here is the health, safety, and welfare of the federal employees. And that is not inconsistent with the necessity to carry on the government's work. I think that what's going on in the private sector is helpful guidance. But remember, the federal government spread across you know, the in North American continent. And so we're gonna have to customize some individual workplaces and building. I agree with Ron that the new normal is not going to look uh, the same as what we had prior to March of 2020. I think that across the board, we're going to see that the nature of work and how work is performed has been affected drastically by this. But I do believe that it's imperative that the government get back to work in the workplace, and I'm glad to see us moving forward along those lines. Ron, I think the word that Dan used there that, that resonates with me the most is customized, because it strikes me there's going to be horizontal and vertical customization necessary across the government. And within an individual agency, a location in the uh, district area is going to be different than a location in Texas or a location in California. And the Agriculture Department will come back differently than the Department of Veterans Affairs and so on. What does that customization look like? How, how should it be approached from an individual agency level? Uh, so, Francis, I think we've talked about one of what I believe are three criteria. Uh, number one, health and safety of the federal worker. Uh, number two, balanced with that is the mission of a particular office. And I'll stress here, it's gotta be office by office by office. Uh, you, you mentioned a couple of agency examples. Think about VA and the multitude of different working environments in VA. So you can't have a VA wide policy. It's literally gotta be office by office. But let me add a third criterion because I believe now that managers voluntarily or otherwise have adopted to adapted to this new normal uh, before there were lots of managers who were skeptical what we used to call line of sight managers you, know, you weren't working unless they could see you and i think we've realized now largely through COVID 19 that we can accomplish the mission without line of sight it can be virtual like we're virtual this morning and I think then individual managers and supervisors are gonna to have to get used to that because there are significant recruiting and retention issues associated with remote or not remote work. 
those um, offices that adopt a remote uh, recruiting and retention policy are probably going to be more competitive because employees are going to demand it. Uh, there are cybersecurity implications to all of that, of course. And there are also, uh, interestingly enough, given my last um, posting, uh, there are substantial locality pay implications to this as well. But um, there are lots of things we need to think, think through, but this is the new normal, as Dan has suggested. Dan, we have about a minute left, and apologies to both of you for the short time that we have. What's the Office of Personnel Management, your former agency's role in providing frameworks to agencies to make decisions and to execute whatever those decisions are? Well, I think it's OPM's role to provide cor a corporate guidance that's government-wide that allows for the things that we've just talked about customization, uh, recognition of different uh, functions and uh, the different roles that agencies play. But I would also emphasize here, this is a test of the leadership. And I think that it's important that as we roll back into a more normal environment, that our leaders are the ones who, uh, <clears throat> who perform this. I think it's important that the political leadership come back. I think the, the Schedule C's and the political class to be among the leaders in that. I also think that the agency career leaders should be among the first that come back because I think there are going to be employees who are skittish, who have genuine concerns. And I think communication across the board will be critical in helping make a uh, comeback to the office successful. Dan Blair and Ron Sanders, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thanks, Francis. Thank you all very much. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You text GOVMATTERS to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by James Mahoney and Drew Friedman. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters Podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract 
to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that the agencies will be able to access that? The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract? GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example, examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, here's what I want. Here's, what I want to, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years. Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still s stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned, you ought to, Stop, stop the presses, start over again, and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.